You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. The money was just burning a hole in Bill Belichick's pocket. He had to spend it, and as fast as possible. Opinionated. Of all the stopgap quarterbacks, Cam Newton was the best choice for the Patriots. Kudos to them getting it right. To the point. Sox will be better. They're still finishing in fourth. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Brady Farkas show on a Friday, a sweltering Friday inside the WDEV studios. We go up until 6 o'clock live, so just a short one-half-hour show because we've got Red Sox baseball, Sox and Yankees for the first time in 2021. We will have a more full discussion transpiring on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel, so always subscribe there on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It is very hard to believe, by the way. It is June 4th, and it's the first time that we're going to see the Sox and Yankees all season But here we are, and both of them are looking up at the Tampa Bay Rays. We will get into a bit of that uh, here as well. On the live version, we will have our Friday Diamond discussion. Nathan Rohde, scouting director at the Prep Baseball Report, is going to stop by. We will talk about the draft prospects of U32 star Owen Kellington, who's up to 94 miles an hour with a devastating hook, and there's a great feature about him recently in the Burlington Free Press. So just how draftable is the Central Vermont star? We will talk about that with Nathan Rohde. Over on the digital side, former NFL wide receiver Michael Bumpus is going to stop by. He now works out in Seattle. He wants the Patriots and Seahawks to make a pretty significant trade, so we'll get into that over there also. Well, we are here live for a half an hour. You can always get in. 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville sponsoring the Napa text line. All right, everybody. We're only here for a half hour live, so let's get going. Five. Four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber, and always online at sticksandstuff.com. I got some notes on the Patriots I want to get to here momentarily, but first I want to start. No, no, no. I need to start with the Boston Bruins, who beat the Islanders last night in overtime 2-1 to to take a 2-1 to series lead. First off, the game-winning shot by Brad Marchand is one of the most remarkable hockey shots I have ever seen in my life. Marchand ripped the game-winner from the left side of the ice, seemingly fading away from the net, skating like towards the boards. He was well below and well outside the far faceoff circle. So picture him. He's going down the ice. He's on the left side. He's going down back to almost behind his net. Like, that's where he's headed. He's below the faceoff circle and outside the faceoff circle, seemingly going even closer and closer to the boards, not towards the middle. And the shot goes in. It had no business going in, but it was truly incredible. And Marshan said after the game, like, hey, in overtime, every shot has a chance to go in. So get shots on net. And certainly that was the case yesterday. Um, um, but that being said, like just away from the pure insanity of the game-winning goal by Marshawn, this game featured a remarkable 
turn of the events, the remarkable turn of the tide in a couple of different ways. Like the Bruins led most of the game. And from how I interpreted it, they controlled the tempo for most of the game. Like think of the third period, for example. The Bruins had 21 shots on Semyon Varlamov in the third period. 21 shots. They had four high-quality power play chances. I mean, Varlamov was fantastic. Like, he had 39 saves yesterday. He was great. But the B still controlled the tempo as far as I was concerned. I mean, look, they got the goal early from from Smith, but in the second period, David Krejci had an awesome look. Nick Ritchie had a great look out in front of the net that was stopped in the second period, too. The Bruins dominated the game as far as I was concerned. And then... When we get to overtime, it went completely the opposite way. The Islanders were all over Tuka Rask in that overtime period. I mean, they got quality look after quality look time and time again on Tuka. I mean, they had a couple of shots, two of them, I believe, that were essentially, there was no one around the shooter, and Tuka was able to stonewall both of them. And we should not overlook the play of Tuka, by the way. He had 28 saves. He didn't need to make as many as Varlamov did because the Bruins controlled the tempo. But there were a few breakaway chances that he stopped. I mean, the first period, um, it was uh, Bo Villar, had, he, had, he had a look. And then there was one in the third as well. I mean, and, and he stonewalled both of those too. So it's good to see the Bruins up two games to one simply because it's good to see them up two to one. It's also important to get home ice advantage back. And it was also interesting, though, like we as fans think home ice advantage is a huge deal. I was talking to Corm here earlier, Steve Cormier, our general manager, and he said, oh, it's great they have home ice. And I thought to myself, you know what? You're right. It is great they have home ice. But Brett Marshan said after the game, like, Homer away, I don't know that it matters right now. We're just happy that there are people back in the building. We're just happy there are fans again. We're happy that there's ambient noise again. Like, whether it's for us or against us, I don't know that it matters. I'm just happy that there's actually fans here. And I thought that was pretty interesting as well. But game three or game four of the series is coming up tomorrow night, uh, just after seven o'clock, as the Bees look to take a commanding three games to one lead. That game will begin to be played on the road at the Coliseum. All right, so Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. A couple minutes away from Nathan Rohde, the prep baseball report, who will stop by with us to talk to us about Owen Kellington. But I uh, do have to get to this news and notes piece. Patriots quarterback Cam Newton today at OTAs appeared to hit his right hand on a helmet and spent considerable time with the Patriots training staff. He left practice. He did not return. Cam Newton appeared to hit his hand on a helmet, his throwing hand on a helmet, spent considerable time with the training staff and the team doctors, left practice, and then watched the rest on the sideline. My, Of course, I don't like hearing this. My first, first reaction was like, oh no, what happened? I was like, great, Cam's going to have broken a finger, dislocated a thumb, something. My first gut reaction was horrible. Now, I'm not quite as worried. I'm not quite as worried. What I would be worried about is if we found out that Cam broke or dislocated his thumb or something like that. The fact that he was able to stay on the premises is encouraging to me. Like The fact that he didn't leave practice and go to the locker room or leave the facility, that was encouraging to me. He stayed at practice. Josh McDaniel spoke to him before going back to work with the other quarterback. So Cam was there. He was present. 
We know Cam is tough. We know Cam can take a hit. So I don't think there's anything more going on here other than just simply kind of protective training camp measures here or protective off-season measures here. But, you know, my first reaction, I was nervous. I got less nervous here as the times we heard about the injury went on. But I will tell you this. If I'm Cam, I'm very, very irritated about this. I'm very irritated about this. Whether Cam misses the half of one practice or misses one month of practices, I don't want any, any extra chances for Mac Jones to outshine me. And and you might think, oh, Brady, not that big a deal. If he's back out there the next workout, oh, everything's fine. It probably will. I get that Cam's not losing his job to Mac Jones because of a limited workout on June 4th, but I don't want, if I'm the veteran who's trying to hold on to the job, I don't want any additional chances for Mac Jones to make a name for himself. They, look, the reports have been good on their relationship, that Cam and Mac Jones get along well, and I trust that that can continue. But as a competitor, as a guy in Cam who's trying to hold on to his job, who's trying to hold on to his position in the league, I don't want to sit out even for one second. I want every rep. I want every extra rep. I want every extra film session. I want the coach's attention. I am doing everything that I can, everything that I can to make sure that that job remains mine. Bill Belichick said the night of the draft that Cam is still the quarterback. We want to make that, if you are Cam Newton, you want to make that the case for the entirety of, you want to make that the case every single day. You don't want to do anything to make Bill Belichick change his mind on those comments. A month and a half ago, Belichick says, Cam's our starter. You want to make sure that Bill Belichick keeps those sentiments all throughout the offseason. And if Cam misses any time, one rep or one month of reps, there's all there's an extra chance there for Mac Jones to insert himself further into the conversation. I hope Cam is okay. I think that Cam is the best option for this team at the quarterback position. I think that a lot of people are looking to give Mac Jones the job. And Cam stepping off the field or being away from the team in any way for any amount of time, it only heightens the conversation around Mac Jones. Um, Michael Giardi of the NFL Network says that Cam appeared to be fixated on the pinky and ring finger on his right hand. He was pronating his wrist a number of times after speaking with the medical staff. Um, See if Giardi's got something else. Uh, No, he's got nothing else there on Cam. But again, he appeared to be fixated on the pinky and ring finger on his right hand. I would think that the thumb is, let me see, the thumb I would think is the most important. I would think that those are the two least important fingers that we're talking about here as a quarterback. I would think thumb, index, middle, the most important because that's where you get most of the grip strength from. The other two fingers are kind of there just as guides, but again, I'm no doctor. I won't pretend to be one. Um, I like hearing that it's not the thumb. I like hearing that it's not. I mean, remember, it was a couple of years ago. It was Tom Brady going into the AFC Championship game against Jacksonville. I think he hit his his thumb on Rex Burkhead's hand, and there was question that he wouldn't be able to play. So thumbs can be a big deal, and I'm glad that this doesn't appear to be at this time a thumb injury. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury, text line 802-585-3026. Uh, we get one from uh, Nathan, who is interesting. We're talking to a Nathan momentarily. Uh, 
Nathan over in Williston who says, Brady, what do you think the realistic chances are of Mac Jones overtaking Cam? Um, I put him at about 10% in the offseason. I mean, like if you're talking about starting week one, I put those chances at about 10%. I think that I trust Bill Belichick when he says that Cam is going to be the guy and that Cam gives him the best chance to win. I also understand that this is a Patriots team that has playoff aspirations. A rookie quarterback who starts week one is generally on a team that doesn't have playoff aspirations, where they can kind of grow and fail together. And the wins and losses are not quite as important as the tangible experience that you're getting. Like Joe Burrow last year can start week one. The team didn't really have playoff goals. It was just like, hey, if we go 4-12, and I'd rather go 4-12 and with Burrow than with Andy Dalton or with Ryan Finley or whoever. So the Patriots have playoff expectations. They spend a bunch of money with the goal of making the playoffs. I think Cam is the guy right away that gives you the greatest chance of doing that. Now, if Cam starts and they're 1-4 and and the playoffs are – a, a pipe dream or gone at that point, then I think Mac Jones would easily insert himself into the conversation and, and very easily potentially into the lineup. I think in order for Mac Jones to start week one, Cam would have to be so far beneath him in the training camp portion of the offseason as well as in the actual preseason itself. And remember, there's only three preseason games this year, so there's even less chance for a Mac Jones to you know, to shine in the preseason and overtake camp. So, good question, Nathan. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Remember, we are about uh, 20 minutes away from the official pregame show of the Yankees and the Red Sox, that game at Yankee Stadium. Nathan Avaldi is on the mound for Boston. He's had good success in his career against the Yankees at the stadium, so I look forward to seeing what Nasty Nate can do today. Sox won yesterday, looking to get back at him. Oh, real quick, this just in. Karen Garugian of uh, the Boston Herald, who covers the Patriots maybe just as well as anybody, she said that uh, nothing appears broken on Cam Newton's throwing hand. So there you go. Patriots are doing further testing, but nothing appears broken. Certainly good news there. It is time for our Friday Diamond Discussion. Our Friday Diamond Discussion is brought to you by Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. I am very, very excited about this next guest. His name is Nathan Rohde. He is the director of scouting at the Prep Baseball Report. And the reason why we're talking to him is because there's been a lot of buzz recently about Owen Kellington. Owen Kellington, the senior at U32. He's committed to play baseball at UConn, but he has been dominant this year. And I didn't realize just how dominant he has been until I read the story recently in the Burlington Free Press earlier this week by Alex Abrami. And the draft is coming up here in a little over a month. So it's not fully draft season yet, but the draft rumor mill is going. And there's a chance that Owen Kellington could be drafted by a major league team a little over a month from now. So Nathan Rohde is with us now on the Brady Farkas Show. Nathan, it's been a long time since we have actually spoken, so it's good to catch up with you again. Likewise, Brady. Yeah, it has been a while. We're just talking you know, a little off air about some of the Northeast guys that we've discussed over the years and uh, it may not be draft season for everybody, but draft season for me is 12 months a year. So <laughs> it's uh, we're definitely getting getting toward the finish line here. You know, I don't expect you at this point to be an expert on every single player all around the country at the prep level. Let me ask you this. <laughs> Have you heard Owen Kellington's names in circles yet? 
Yes, I have, actually. I did a swing through the Northeast this year. I didn't get all the way up to Vermont, uh, but obviously I have a lot of uh, friends that are scouts for Major League teams up there. Um, and as I was kind of putting my trip together and asking guys like, Hey, when's this guy throw in? What games are good? Where should I go? Um, I was talking to a friend that was on his way to see Owen Kellington. Hmm. So the name definitely, uh, is, is, is bouncing around a little bit out there and he sounds, uh, quite, in, quite intriguing. You know, he's committed to UConn. Um, mm-hmm. let me ask you this. UConn has obviously produced a number of major leaguers, George Springer mm-hmm. on the offensive side of things, Matt Barnes here with the Red Sox, mm-hmm. as we try to figure out if Owen Kellington gets drafted, will he go to pro levels or will he go to UConn? Tell us about UConn. Why is that a good place for him to go if he goes there? They've just shown recently a track record of producing players, of getting guys uh, on the campus that, you know, maybe they're, it's more about projection than right now for them at a la, you know, a George Springer or Matt Barnes. I know Springer had like a little bit of buzz on him out of high school. I was at Baseball America at the time, and I remember Aaron Fitt was doing the Northeast. He's with D1Baseball.com now, and um, he had notes on Springer in high school and his conversations with scouts. And sure enough, a few years later, he's a first rounder. Um, but they've just, continued that track record of producing the guys getting the ones out of high school that can develop into top prospects. And, um, that's continued. You got the Winkle brothers, um, you know, that, that had some buzz coming out of high school. They ended up on campus, uh, you know, and still are, are names to be, uh, known in the draft. Um, so just continuing that trend is helpful for their program because they know that, you know, a lot of guys, they want to play pro ball, but they also want to, make sure that they get their value, their full value. So they know like if I bypass now, there's still a good chance that I go to UConn and develop and turn into a guy uh, that's still considered, you know, in the early rounds. In a 40 round draft year, I would say Owen Kellington probably gets drafted 94 miles an hour. Great curveball, really good numbers, but this Mm -hmm. is not a 40 round draft year. The major league draft this year is 20 rounds. Mm -hmm. How does that impact a prep pitchers chances of getting drafted i don't think you'll see a, a huge effect obviously we won't have as many of those quote-unquote late round flyers of yeah. the you know the 35th kamar rocker i think was a 37th round pick mm-hmm. or something like that out of high school very easily could have been a top 10 pick on his stuff but 38th round you take him you know you're not going to sign him but you take him so that he's not supposedly a free agent We'll see certainly 20 rounds less of that. Um, And I think you'll see a lot more picks that are signable guys. So a guy like Owen Kellington, if he doesn't go, you know, in the top five rounds, maybe he falls in that 11th to 13th round, which is where we see a lot of the, you know, the guys that you didn't get picked early because maybe their number was questionable or you didn't get a good read on assignability. So you take them in the 11th round and then you have conversations with them throughout the summer and then maybe you sign them because the number comes down from what it was or for whatever reason. But if you don't sign them, it doesn't count against you in your draft pool. You don't miss out on that money. Um, so it's a little bit less risk. So could still see that with him. But, you know, as far as the late round guy that's picked just to be picked, uh, we'll certainly see a lot less of that. Nathan Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. It's our Friday Diamond discussion, thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph. I mentioned the numbers off the bat. I mean, seven batted balls in play <laughs> as we talk right now. You know, he had a, uh, a 20 Ks out of 21 outs the other day mm-hmm. when he pitched. Those numbers are great. 
but I also contextualize it by saying he's playing in Vermont high school baseball. Sure. How does that, how does where a guy grows up impact what their projectability is, draftability, et cetera? It's, it definitely is a big deal. It, you know, they're looking at what you're doing uh, against the competition. And if, uh, you know, if Owen Kellington is doing that in Southern California, that raises his stock that much because he's playing in California. If he did things like that on the summer circuit last year, that obviously elevates uh, his stock because he's doing it against tougher competition. Now, for him specifically playing in Vermont, putting up those numbers, I don't think it elevates his stock, um, you know, just kind of talking about the level of competition, but it doesn't hurt him either playing there and putting up those numbers because basically the narrative then becomes, well, he's doing what he should do. Hmm. And by that, it, it gives, it doesn't give you pause in the fact of like, Oh wait, you know, this guy's pitching in Vermont. He's up to 94, but he's losing games or he's giving up hits. Like he shouldn't be doing that. What are we missing here? Right now, Kellington putting up those numbers, he's doing exactly what he should do for the talent that he is has playing in the area that he is. You know, we talked a couple of years ago when I was working in New York, and I remember the conversation then was about how are Northeastern players viewed? Guys that mm-hmm. can't play as often, guys that can't play as long. How is that five years later? I mean, a Northeastern pitcher, is that viewed as a guy who, hey, great, he's not worn out because he can't play 12 months a year? Or is that viewed mm-hmm. as like, we haven't seen him do it enough? it's I think it's it's changed a little bit and uh, we've had this I had this conversation actually a few years ago about um a Wisconsin kid Gavin Lux who's played in the big leagues uh already and it was you know at the time when he was getting drafted it was like the track record for Wisconsin high school bats is not good because they don't play tough competition but then if you look at the individual and Gavin Lux, it's like, well, yeah, but he played on the circuit all last summer. He tried out for team USA, you know, at tournament of stars, he was at the area code game. So he, he played against these good hitters. Um, it was just his spring competition. Wasn't that great. So we had a deeper track record with the summer circuit and that has only continued to grow over the years. So, I think it it becomes more individual than that overarching conversation about Northeast guys. So we talked about, you know, we talked about Ian Anderson off air and like, you know, he was a quote unquote fresh arm. He pitched yeah. in the Northeast, didn't, you know, throw, didn't have a whole lot of miles on there. So that was attractive. Um, I don't think it's quite like that. Like it used to be because so many guys have so many opportunities to play over the summer, but I, so it comes down to the individual, you know, maybe taking Ian Anderson and, Maybe he doesn't do a lot on the summer circuit, but pitches in the spring. It's still a low mileage arm, but there could be a guy like Ian Anderson who has pitched a ton on the summer circuit. So you got to look at more of the individual as opposed to the, uh, the entire region. Now, some of it's still true, but you still got to do your homework on the, uh, on the single singular player. You know, I asked you a minute ago, if where he's from holds him back, but could I flip it the other way is does where he's from actually help him just in the sense that like when we talk about Ian Anderson, who's playing for the Braves, he came from a very big high school, a reputable state championship caliber program. You mm-hmm. knew he was getting good coaching and he was much more refined with an Owen Kellington coming out of Vermont. Can I say, look, he's doing this and there's still a likelihood he's pretty raw given, mm-hmm. you know, kind of he hasn't played as much on the travel circuit, the coaching he might be getting at the high school level. And there hasn't, there's not as much private instruction in Vermont. Do people look at that and say, he's doing all this and there's likely still more there. 
Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, you take a guy like that, and we talk about the raw talent. If he's doing what he's doing, he's got the talent that he does, but he hasn't received a lot of instruction. I don't know for him specifically the instruction that he's received or the people that he's working with, but if that's the case, then, and if you as a team have done your homework and realize, oh, yeah, you know, we basically you're getting a Blake canvas that has this raw talent. So now if we put him with our player development program, you could argue that the ceiling is is really high because it's like, well, he's got all this stuff with no instruction and no help. So what can we do? What can we unlock or tap into when we put him into the development system that we have? Yeah, Vermont has developed in the last year a kind of driveline type mm-hmm. facility, but that's really been it. So you're talking about like, and he goes there. So it's like a year of that kind of coaching, mm-hmm. not 10 years of that kind of coaching. Um, right. I wanted to ask you this before I get you out of here. Um, you see players drafted from all around the country every year, and a lot of them are from small towns like Owen Kellington is. When a player gets drafted and puts their town or their area on the circuit, what does that do for a baseball community? I mean, it can really ignite uh, a community and you know get them into baseball. You know, I'm a big proponent of – you know, community baseball and not as like, I mean, I obviously I like travel baseball. I get to go around the country and see really good players all on one team. But I also do love the kind of that community feel of baseball. Like I played in a little league yeah. ball up through high school. Like when my high school team was really good because we played together from the time that we were nine years old all the yeah. way up to high school. And there's something to that. So, but then an Owen Kellington type it could ignite, you know, young children if they know who he is they go to the ballpark when they're young to see him play for the high school team that could get them into baseball and their friends into baseball and um you know i talked about that a few years ago when kansas city was looking they had joey wentz they had riley pint um you know nolan williams they were all in the kansas city metro area and it was the year after the royals won the world series you could feel the buzz you could feel the passion for baseball there um and could see the potential of it kind of igniting uh, the area for for the future so it's certainly possible well in the time i've been here in five years vermont has had two high school players drafted rain supple uh, was drafted by the rockies theo mcdowell out of high school drafted by mm-hmm. the rangers um nathan i'll get you out of here one red sox related question i mentioned red sox have the fourth pick overall these are names you're definitely going to be very familiar with oh yeah tell tell me i got a chance at kumar rocker or jack lighter at number four out of vanderbilt you're telling me there's a chance yes <laughs> there there is a chance if you had asked me that you know a few months ago i would probably said keep dreaming uh, but as we all know this is a 12-month process it, it's not a three-month process there's a lot that goes into it uh not to mention that unfortunately for a lot of ways unfortunately the mlb draft isn't necessarily about talent it's about talent crossed with accounting and yeah. strategy so is kamar rocker and, and jack Leiter are they the two best guys uh, talent-wise in the draft? I think so. I, I think the high school guys behind them, as well as Henry Davis at Louisville, certainly are in the conversation. But Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter right now, for me, are the two most talented guys. Are they going to go one-two on talent? I, it's hard to say right now because the money plays into it. But after you know some rocky starts, you know a missed weekend here, there, whatever, I think the Red Sox chances are certainly a lot higher than they were a few uh few months ago to get guys like that and honestly if you're picking at four and there's there's five guys two three guys are going to be off the board and you're still going to have a pretty good pick of the litter when you get when your name gets called 
Well, Major League Draft coming up in mid-July, right before the MLB All-Star Game. Nathan mm-hmm. Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report, Director of Scouting, with us on the Brady Farkas Show here. Shedding some light on the Sox, but also on U32 star pitcher Owen Kellington and his draft chances and uh, probabilities that he goes in the draft as well. Nathan, man, appreciate it. Good to reconnect. We'll do it again here uh, maybe in a month or so. We'll see what happens. That sounds great, Brady. Sounds great to me as well. Um, it is an awesome thing. When somebody from your state, when someone from your little community gets drafted. I've seen this a couple of times in my career. Um, the times I mentioned, having talked to Nathan Rohde before, um, you know, when I was in Albany, I'm, I'm struggling to remember the years itself, but Jeff Hoffman got picked ninth overall by the Blue Jays, and he was a guy who went to my rival high school. Garrett Whitley was a guy who went to one of my rival rival high schools. He went, I believe, 13th overall to the Tampa Bay Rays. Is still in the minor leagues right now. Hoffman now currently plays for the Cincinnati Reds. And then Ian Anderson, who we spoke about there, he was drafted third overall by the Braves. He went to my high school. And now Albany is a bigger area that has had players get drafted before. And it was a huge deal there to see that community rally around those draft prospects. And now subsequently, years out, follow those players as they evolve into their career. Um, I mean, Ian Anderson last year started Game 7, I believe, of the NLCS. And he's on the mound tonight against the Dodgers in a rematch of the NLCS. And players from back home, you know, guys from back home, family from back home, friends from back home, they're still following Ian Anderson right now to this day. Day. I was at that wedding last weekend, and my buddies and I are are monitoring Ian Anderson, who was pitching the night of the wedding. Like that's what this does for a community. And Owen Kellington has an opportunity to do that for Central Vermont. And look, if he goes to UConn, then great. There is no bad answer here. If he goes to UConn, he gets a great education. He plays at a very good program, in which, as Nathan said, they can continue to develop his skills. And then three or four years later, he comes back and gets drafted again, potentially. Or he goes pro now, gets there a little earlier, gets some real good coaching right away at the minor league levels, and continues to hone those raw skills. Um, and the work that he's done over at Strike Zone Academy in Essex, uh, you know, really has made a lot of jumps in the last year. So credit to those guys up there as well. All right, that was our Friday Diamond discussion. Thanks to Nathan Rohde for stopping by. That will do it for me on the live portion of the show. We will have a fully digital version of the show coming up here as well on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Red Sox, Yankees, that's next right here on your home for Red Sox baseball, WDEV, AM and FM. Hi, this is Evan Hallstrom. I race super late models with the Pro All-Star Series. You can follow me throughout the summer racing up and down the East Coast. I've always loved auto racing. Not only do I drive the car, but I build it with my dad. We're a small family-run team that has a lot of fun. I'm proud of the work that I do with the Governor's Highway Safety Program and the Vermont Highway Safety Alliance. Remember, click it or ticket. Follow me on my Facebook page at Evan Hallstrom Racing and Twitter at EvanHMS1 or my website at EvanHallstromRacing.com. All right, everybody, I'd like to thank you all for continuing on to the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel here on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. Thanks to Nathan Rohde of Prep Baseball Report for dropping by in the live version. We'll have Michael Bumpus, former NFL wide receiver, hanging out with us here in the digital version. He's got an idea here on a crazy trade for the, uh, I don't know if it's crazy, but he's got an idea for a trade involving the Seahawks, the Patriots, and sending Stephon Gilmore to Seattle. So we'll talk about some of that rationale as well. So I want to start here, started off the live show with the Bruins. I want to start off the digital show the same way. I found the comments by ESPN NHL analyst, longtime 
ESPN hockey analyst Barry Melrose. Very interesting about the Bruins. He says Brad Marchand is the straw that stirs the drink. Scott, I think he's the best winger in the NHL. That means the world. He's small in stature, big in heart. He fights anybody. He blocks shots. Uh, He gets a puck out around the wall every night. When you need a big goal, he gets it. Uh, The guy is a fantastic hockey player. He's a fantastic leader. Uh, That's why the Boston Bruins are able to lose three or four leaders and not miss a beat because of guys like Bergeron and Marchand. So I I love him, too. He'd be on my team any day of the week, uh, Brad Marchand. You know, I don't pretend to have all the answers on the Bruins. I've been pretty transparent with you about this all along. I like hockey. I watch the Bruins. But I don't claim to know the game at the level of a Barry Melrose or, or even some of you, the listener. I really don't. But it is weird. Melrose says that he thinks that they are, you know, that Marchand is the uh, straw that serves the drink, basically, for them. I think the Bruins really are a perfect hybrid. I don't know that I can sit here and say that any one person is more important than the other. I think the whole top line, Marshawn Bergeron and uh, Pasternak, is incredibly valuable to the team because I think they truly are the perfect complements to each other. I don't know that I can pick out one of those players and say, "Oh, this team is you know this team is driven by X or this team is driven by Y or this team is driven by Z." I don't think I can. Of course, to Melrose's point. I absolutely think that Marshawn's skill is needed, of course. I also think his chippiness, his willingness to play the game right up to the edge is important. Yes, he's crossed that edge before. He's gone over the line. But he's a guy that is willing to do things that Patrice Bergeron is not. Sometimes you need that aggression. But conversely, you also sometimes need the calm that Patrice Bergeron provides. Not everything in sports, not everything on the ice, not everything in life can be aggressive. Not everything can be reactive. Sometimes you need a guy who brings a level-headedness to the party, and Patrice Bergeron is that guy. Brad Marchand's the guy you bring to the party who gets rowdy and everybody loves, and he's a good time, and he makes the party what it is. But Patrice Bergeron's a good time too, but he keeps everybody in check, and he keeps guy from number one, guy number one from going too overboard. You need both of those guys. Every group needs both. You need the guy who's who's fun, who's willing to take the party to the next level. I need the other guy that keeps the other guy in check. Bergeron and Marshawn are incredible complements to each other because in a lot of ways they seem absolute opposites attitude-wise. They both lead in their own way. But if the entire team was in the mold of Patrice Bergeron, this team would be undisciplined. I'm sorry, if this whole team was in Marshawn's um, image, the team would be undisciplined, aggressive, reactive, and probably very streaky. If the whole team was built like Bergeron, you'd probably see a team, I don't want to say soft, that's the wrong word, but you'd probably see a team that's a little too relaxed, a little too um, calm. You need both of them. And that doesn't even include Pasternak. Okay, The attention that Bergeron requires, the attention that uh, that that Marshawn requires opens up the door for Pasternak to do what he does best, which is let his skill shine through. And then when you start focusing on him, the other two guys can get theirs. They truly are. You know, I I can't sit here and say they're the best line in hockey. 
Okay, I don't know if talent-wise they are still the best line in hockey. What I do believe is that from all the hockey I watch, they feel like the line that complements each other the best. So Barry Melrose is absolutely right that Marchand is critical to this team and his skills are unbelievable. But to say that he's the guy that makes the whole thing go, I, I don't know that because I truly think they need every single part of this. Of that line, they need every part of it. They need all three of their skills, but they need the attitude on the aggressive end of Marchand. They need the attitude on the calming passive end of Bergeron. And that right there allows Pasternak's skill to do what it does best, which is shine through. It's the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel here on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Again, thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. We do it every single day on the live version. Let's get to Who's saying what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? I don't I don't like the signing. I'm not happy about the signing. Okay. I think about 99.5 of New England is upset with this news today. All right. They really said that? That's the issue for me, is that he is limited physically in a vacuum. Cam Newton's shoulder is what it is. His body is what it is. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels talking at OTAs yesterday about Cam Newton and about Mac Jones. He starts off this clip, first half is about Mac Jones, second half is about Cam. You'll be able to tell the difference. He certainly you know, stood out in, in certain uh, certain obvious ways um, you know, relative to throwing the football and command and um, you know, protecting the ball and, and not not um, not hurting his football team. He came back certainly this year at a at a, a much different position. You know, he has a a different grasp of the offense, a different understanding of the terminology. Um, and now we're working on refining, um, you know, the, the the precision, the details. So the first clip or the first part of the clip there about Mac Jones. Second part about Cam Newton. Remember Cam. Hurt today, sat out a portion of practice with a hand injury. Um, on Mac Jones first, I like, of course, I told you yesterday to, to watch the hype train on Mac Jones, but I like what McDaniels has to say there, obviously. He says anticipation, he's comfortable. He certainly you know, stood out in, in certain uh, certain obvious ways, um, you know, relative to throwing the football and command and um, you know, protecting the ball and, and not not um, not hurting his football team. So that's really, really good there, right? We've heard that he anticipates throws. We've heard he gets the ball out quickly. We've heard he's got command of everything. Now you hear he's not going to make the play that beats you, and that's good for a rookie. Ultimately, I've said this from the start, I think that Mac Jones, his ceiling is limited. I think he will be Alex Smith. And I think Alex Smith has been a great player in this league for a long time, but Alex Smith is always a guy that everybody has looked to move on from rather than run to. When you are a rookie, it's good to have everything built around you, and hey, just don't be the guy that screws it up. But if we're eventually going to pay you $40 million a year, we're going to need a little more than that. And that's where Alex Smith fell short. It's where he wasn't as sexy as Kaepernick. He wasn't as sexy as Patrick Mahomes. Washington, now again, injury here, but Washington didn't want to bring him back this year. You need more. Mac Jones, though, as a rookie, those are good traits to have. Absolutely good traits to have. I'm glad he's not hurting the football team. On Cam, McDaniels, it's good there. He talks about Cam having a good um, handle on the offense, 
We've heard he's much further ahead this year than he was last year. I think that that is excellent as well. But when he talks about having to refine everything, that shows me again mechanically there's still some issues with Cam, and Cam's working on them. But I told you yesterday, when you are in a battle with yourself, that is a hard place to be in at times. That is a hard place to be in. So hopefully we get to the point where Cam, everything becomes instinctual. Because when you start thinking and you start having a ton of clutter in your mind, that becomes a problem that you don't want to have. That becomes you just in your own head and the wheels turning too fast. Patriots did make a, uh, I would call it a small but not insignificant move today. Patriots signed wide receiver Marvin Hall, who's a guy that you've probably heard of. He spent a couple of years in the league with the Atlanta Falcons, then spent a year with the Detroit Lions, and then last year split time between the Lions and the Cleveland Browns. So in his career, okay, Marvin Hall has not done much. He's got 37 career catches in his career. He's got less than 1,000 yards. He's a guy that's got five touchdowns. Now, what is interesting about Marvin Hall is that he is a guy that has some big playability to him. He's got 21 yards per reception in his career. Limited sample, but 21 yards per reception. How does it impact the Patriots? I would say he's there to potentially challenge Nikhil Harry. Nikhil Harry certainly has the the, the leg up, given that he's got three years left on his deal. He's a first-round pick. He's got, obviously, raw athleticism. So... But Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar, and Jacoby Myers, they are set. Gunnar Olszewski is set. That's four. Trey Nixon, the draft pick, Nikhil Harry, Marvin Hall. They're all going to battle here for the fifth receiver spot. And given what the Patriots are going to do this year, I think play a lot of two tight end sets. They're going to run the ball a lot. I don't know how often they're really going to need five wide receivers, so... There's an opportunity, you know, I like I think five probably is the number. I don't know that they're gonna need six. You kind of always need guys in reserve on your practice squad, but so Olszewski's in there because of his special teams ability. He can all he can play receiver. Myers is there, Bourne is there, Aguilar's there. That's four. You probably only need one more. Trey Nixon, Marvin Hall, and Nikhil Harry, they're probably all battling for it. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens as we move through the rest of the offseason program. Marvin Hall. Look, he's a small signing. He's not overtaking the first four that I just talked about. Certainly, no, you know, maybe Olszewski is more of a special teams player, but certainly he's not getting any higher than fourth on the depth chart if he does make the team. But it's not insignificant in that it may push Nikhil Harry as well. All right, continuing on here on the podcast channel. Before we get to Michael Bumpus, former NFL wide receiver, speaking of wideouts, I want to uh, get to this on the Boston Celtics. The report came out yesterday that the Seas are going to look to trade Kemba Walker. And I don't know if that means they're going to solicit a bunch of offers, they're going to take offers, whatever. The Celtics are going to consider trading Kemba Walker this offseason. If you are the Seas, I would say, like if you're looking for, if you're a Seas fan, if you're looking for any big player-driven movement this offseason, this kind of feels like the only move that's in the cards. Okay? This kind of feels like the only thing. Adam Kaufman told us yesterday on the live version of the show, like, hey, maybe Jalen Brown's not untouchable with Brad Stevens. It feels to me like Jalen Brown is untouchable. So, I mean, Marcus Smart, I guess, could move, but I don't think, you know, I don't think you want to move him given what he brings to the team. Kemba Walker is probably the guy that can move. And I like Kemba. 
a lot. And part of the reason why I like him is because he's been everything Kyrie Irving wasn't here. Accountable, um, shows good leadership in a lot of ways, certainly is productive, good with the media, seems to be good with his teammates. Kemba's everything Kyrie wasn't here. But with the knee, he's obviously damaged goods. He's on the wrong side of 30. So because of that, if you try to trade Kemba Walker, what are you really getting? What are you really getting? Like, I'm not opposed to moving Kemba, but I don't know what you can get back for him to the point that makes it worth it. It feels like you'd be selling awfully low on Kemba Walker. And Adam Coffin told us yesterday, like, I don't know that you can sell high on him. So if you deal Kemba just to acquire salary relief, you aren't helping push this team forward. This team with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown is still a team that should be should be a top four team in the East and a championship contender. We want this team to get better, not get worse. So if you trade Kemba for salary relief, I, that doesn't do anything to push your team forward. If you're using the savings from a Kemba Walker trade to just simply re-sign Evan Fournier, I don't think you're getting better either. I think if you just replace Kemba with Fournier, you get a good player, but Fournier's not as good as Kemba when he's healthy. So Brad Stevens, as the new executive here, is in a real predicament. He's in a real predicament. Kemba makes this team a whole lot better, but his lack of availability is a real problem, and it curtails anything you can get back. And if you do trade him, it certainly makes the team worse. Like, I don't know that when he's healthy, you're getting any player better than Kemba Walker this offseason, especially in a trade. You're not getting any player that's better than Kemba Walker, as far as I'm concerned, in a trade. So you'd be selling awfully low, and the team would be getting worse. And, and I think Brad Stevens is in a real predicament. It does lead me, though, to this. In the past, every year I've been here, this will be the fifth year that I'm in year five of being here. Every year that I've been here in New England, there was always something to look forward to with the Celtics. There was always something to look forward to. There was all the draft picks. There was max contract availabilities. There was even some unexpected stuff like the Kyrie Irving trade blindsided us. Here, this year, the Celtics don't really have anything to look forward to this summer other than possible subtraction, I feel like. Like, if you trade Kemba Walker, you're subtracting from what I think should be a championship roster. That's the only move on the chessboard that it feels like might get made, and therefore, it feels like this offseason, I feel like we've already had the fireworks of our Celtics offseason. What happened this week? What's, what transpired this week with Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens? That's, you know, and then when they hire a new head coach. Like, is that the only thing we have to look forward to? Is when they hire a new head coach? It feels, you know, look, it's not always about what drama can you provide us, the fans? But doesn't feel like there's going to be a whole lot of drama with this Celtics offseason. Kemba Walker getting traded, I think, makes the team worse. And I'm not really in favor of making the team worse. I'm, I understand needing to move Kemba because he's not always available. But I also don't think you're getting a whole lot better. So, all right, Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com, podcast version here. I had a chance earlier this week to catch up with Michael Bumpus, former NFL wide receiver who caught one NFL touchdown in his career. He played for the Seahawks, and now he's a radio personality at 710 ESPN in Seattle. He's got a crazy, at least to me, idea. 
Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. As we continue to monitor the Patriots in the offseason training program here, a lot of the conversation has centered on Mac Jones and Cam Newton. But one of the storylines that is big that we haven't talked too much about is still the ongoing questions about Stephon Gilmore's future. He's a free agent coming up after next year. He's not being paid a ton of money commensurate with what his accomplishments are right now in New England. So we still don't know where the organization goes with him. And now it seems like other organizations and other fan bases may be trying to poach him away from New England. I was scrolling through Twitter last week, and it came up to me that uh, the crew over at 710 ESPN Seattle is advocating for the Seahawks to call the Patriots and try to trade for Stephon Gilmore. So joining me now is Michael Bumpus from 710 ESPN Seattle, former Seahawks wide receiver and a former college star at Washington State. So, Michael, de- defend your take here. Why are you trying to poach Stephon Gilmore away? Man, you got to go after a guy like Gilmore, um, a former in, uh, excuse me, defensive player of the year in the NFL. This guy has been a lockdown corner for a bunch of years, and he's done it in New England. We all know Bill Belichick is great with his defensive schemes, and he really coaches guys up. And at this point, the Hawks are one or two players away, in my opinion, of being true contenders. Every year they are contenders because of Russell Wilson, number three. He puts them in the mix. But what have they been missing? They've been missing that dominant defense that people are used to seeing from 2013 and 14. Now, I caution folks, right? Don't always go back and try to relive the glory days. But take a piece of that recipe and add it to the team that you have now. You have a team with offensive weapons galore. You got DK, you got Lockie, you got Chris Carson, Gerald Everett is over from the Rams now. So now let's enhance that defense. They have made some moves on defense. They acquired Witherspoon from the 49ers. You got Hyder from the 49ers on that defensive line. But the secondary is where this team has been hurt the most. They were giving up at some point, Brady, it seemed like 500 yards a game. Guys are just going up top. So you go get a guy who has lots of guys down. They locked down DK last year. DK had a day against him, but he's going up against DK. You get a guy who can enhance the secondary. I think the box is solid. It's all about that secondary. Why not go get a veteran? It makes sense why the Seahawks would want Gilmore, but does your trade premise come with a contract extension too? Because if we're talking about Stephon Gilmore playing on a one-year deal for a team that's pretty good playoff caliber, I'd argue why doesn't he just stay in New England then? That's a safe bet. Stay in New England. Now it's all about relationships, right? Or or how he views this team. We know New England struggled last year, but they had a lot of guys opt out, opt out because of COVID. Now you have Cam Newton who had his struggles. You got Mac Jones who's going to battle for that spot over there. How does he feel about New England? Does he think this team is capable of playing winning football again? He knows what it looks like. He's been there for a while. He's seen Tom Brady work. He knows what winning football looks like. So what does the future look like to him? And now does he want to come out West? Do you want a different environment? Like you're going from two different coaches. If he were to leave and come to Seattle, you're going from Bill Belichick, the disciplinarian, I'm not going to smile, don't ask me any dumb questions, to Pete Carroll, I'm going to let you be yourself, free-flowing, high fives, let's have some fun. At some point in guys' careers, they have to make a decision. Am I okay with the situation that I'm in? Guys with leverage, now Gilmore has leverage, he's a veteran. Am I okay with my situation? Or do I want to switch it up and experience something else? That's what I'm banking on. I'm banking on him thinking, man, maybe the grass is greener over there. Talk to me about the mindset of a pro athlete, because I think Gilmore uh, is in a really interesting spot. We look at the AFC East, we say, hey, the Jets are rebuilding. They're not going to be great for a couple of years. The Dolphins are a run first team. We don't quite know what Tua is. Like outside of Buffalo, I look at Gilmore and say, hey, I can do some pretty good things in this division and I can continue to up my own stats and my own name and my own standing in the league. Whereas if I go to Seattle, 
Maybe I got a better chance to win a Super Bowl, but I'm getting tested every single week in that division. Like, I don't know. Like, talk to me about the competition factor and what guys may value. Yeah, that's a, a, another great point, right? You come out west, you got to deal with Hopkins, you got to deal with AJ yeah. Green, you got to deal with Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel. I mean, the receiving cores over here is a bit thicker than over there, and it's a lot tougher. It's the best division of football, in my opinion. So now it's about okay. Can I look at this division? Can I look at the receivers that they have over there and accept the challenge and say, you know what? I still have an ego. I'm still one of the best corners in the league. It doesn't matter who they have over there. And now you look at the football teams. Again, which teams give us the better chance to win? If I am Gilmore and I'm in his situation, one, it's about the money. Both teams are going to pay him about the same if they do the one-year deals, about $7 million. Yep. That's what the Hawks have in, in cap space anyway. And second, it's about... Okay, am I still challenging myself? Do I still have that chip on my shoulder? Because at some point, guys reach a point, Brady, and they're like, man, I'm established. I am who I am. I don't have to prove anything. If that's the way he feels, I can see him staying in in New England and taking the easy route. But now, if he's like, you know what, I want to shut some of these young guys up, you know, or I want to go up against a couple of the greats. I want to go up against D-Hop and and the young Brandon Ayuk and the guys over out West. Personal challenges is going to make or are going to be a huge factor in this, does he feel like he has to prove something? And then also culture. I mean, it always gets, gets back to culture. Is he is he in his comfort zone in New England, and does he mind getting out of it? Talk to me a little bit about quarterback stability because I think if you're talking about a one-year deal where there's no additional contract, if I'm Gilmore, I'd rather go play with Russell Wilson than what the Patriots have going on right now. But if you're looking for something more long-term, I could get why a guy doesn't want to be in New England because you just don't know what the future is in playing with a potential rookie quarterback and you're 30 plus years old. Do you want a young quarterback who, you know, is there to go seven and 10? Is Russell Wilson going to be there long term in Seattle? Because if he is, I think that's a lot more attractive. Is he? That's the question. Is he going to be here long term? Russell Wilson, have the Seattle Seahawks done enough to appease the grumpy veteran? Hmm. I think they have. I think he'll be here for at least two years. But over in New England, you just don't know. I think Cam Newton, I've been a fan of Cam Newton. I loved his career, his MVP season, going to the Super Bowl. I just don't think he has it anymore. I think that that's why you draft Mac Jones. Uh, that's why um, you, you, you have this young guy kind of pushing Cam Newton. If Cam's in the right offense, maybe he has some juice left in those arms. But from what I saw last year, the guy's banged up. He's been injured. I just don't think he has it anymore. Russell Wilson has to be the more attractive quarterback. You have a guy who is going to put up 30 touchdowns every single year. He's going to play almost every game, knock on wood. He's played in every game so far in his career. And there's a stability over there. And as we get older, as I get older in life, what am I searching for? Stability. I got kids. I got a wife. I got a mortgage. I got all these things I need to handle. I need stability in my career. And that's what gives the Seahawks the edge is that Russell Wilson, even if he's only here for a year, even if he's only here for two years, he's going to give this team a chance to win right now. You can't say that in New England. Cam Newton didn't didn't give him a chance to win last year. Obviously, he was hurt. I understand that. Mac Jones is a rookie. I never count on rookies. I don't care what position they're in. I don't care how I would where they're drafted. You just don't want to count on rookies. Every now and then you get a Justin Jefferson and guys who ball out and, and change that narrative. But you don't want to count on rookies. You're looking at the quarterback position. You win with quarterbacks. Russell Wilson's here. One of the games last year that was one of the best on the NFL schedule was Patriots-Seahawks week two yeah. in Seattle. And if Cam doesn't get stopped at the one, the Patriots win that game, and maybe their their season ends up differently. 
What did you think of Cam from afar in that game? Because we walked out of that game thinking Cam looked pretty darn good, and I tend to be optimistic on Cam, but it sounds like you're attributing that to the Seahawks' defense was horrendous last year. Well, they were horrendous, but you still have to make the play. And Julian Elliman had his best game of the year as well. I look at yes. that, and I'm thinking, man, Cam to Julian, that can be dangerous. Cam was getting loose a bit with his feet, at least enough to be a threat. And you're right, after that game, I'm thinking Cam is back. And, and, and I'm rooting for Cam, just not against the Seahawks. I'm like, I yeah. want to see this, this man succeed. Um, and then it comes down to a goal line stop. I believe LJ Collier forced everything inside. We got pads on, on Cam's thigh and pretty much flipped him over. But uh, after that game, man, I thought he was good to go. But then something happened. I don't know if he was banged up after that game. I don't know if team just kind of figured out, look, all you got to do is shut down Julian and it's a wrap. But something changed after that game. But that's the beauty of football, man. You play one game, then the team has a week to prepare. Then every single week, man, those tapes are going in the archives. And, and coaches get smarter. They picked up on, pick up on tendencies and really found where Cam uh, was weak. And for Cam, it's just sitting in the pocket and throwing the football. And when you're in your 30s now and you've been a running quarterback, you've taken a bunch of hits, the most hits as any, as any quarterback in the NFL, you're, you're going to break down a bit. And I think that's what we saw. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. So the idea that the Seahawks defense needs help was aided by that game, and that's why you want Stephon Gilmore. What's the price you pay for a former defensive player of the year who only has one year left on his deal? Ah, oh, man, what's the price you pay? They're going to try to keep him around $7 million, but I think you don't disrespect the man. And, and, and you know what, Brady, people talk about cap space. Man, they can move money around. There's I guess I meant, I meant more in terms of the trade offer to New England. Are you offering a second? Are you offering a okay. fourth? What do you offer for him? Oh, man, I, I wouldn't go as far as a second. I would go with a fourth round pick. And I just don't know if that's if that's enough to get him. You know, I don't know if Bill Belichick is going to feel disrespected, you know, with the yeah. offer. But I think that's where you go right now, just because the Hawks don't have a lot of draft capital. Now, if you were to flip it and ask me uh, about Julio Jones, I say you do whatever you get. You, you, you have to, to get Julio Jones. But with Gilmore, because I feel like this defense is in a better place than it was Last year, just with the, the guys that they brought over, man, I think you offer a fourth and, and cross your fingers and hope that him talking to Russell and guys over here um, makes it a bit more attractive. Well, it will continue to be a storyline that we monitor as we move through the offseason as we head towards Patriots football just a couple of months from now. Michael Bumpus over at 710 ESPN Seattle, former Seahawks wide receiver and a former star at Washington State with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. Michael, man, we appreciate your perspective and time, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right, Brady, appreciate you, man. Have a good one. All right, that was my interview from earlier this week with Michael Bumpus, former NFL wide receiver, 710 ESPN in Seattle. Now I thought it was very, very cool to catch up with him. Um, take some time to digest what he's gonna, you know, what he had said. I don't like I I don't think the Stephon Gilmore trade is all that logical under the circumstances that he and his cohorts in Seattle kind of think it is. Like, I get why they want Gilmore. They want Gilmore because their team lost Shaquille Griffin at defensive back, and their defense was what held back the team last year for the most part. Second half of the year, the offense wasn't wasn't particularly great, but first half of the year, the defense was atrocious. It was like the second worst in the league, like in the history of the league. So I get why they want Gilmore. But if they want Gilmore for a fourth-round pick, I'm not doing it. If they want Gilmore under the impression that they're going to trade for him and he's just going to play for one year and $7 million, I don't think Gilmore's doing that. I think Gilmore wants a new deal, wherever that is. If you're telling me, hey, he could get the same money in Seattle and New England, then I think there's absolutely a chance he could choose Seattle. Absolutely. 
But right now, under the circumstances as we know them, I don't think that it's particularly logical to think that that deal is going to happen. I'm not trading Gilmore for just a fourth-round pick at this point if I'm New England because I, too, want to make the playoffs, and I, too, need good players in order to accomplish that goal. I also don't think that Gilmore would sign off on, hey, I got one year left, I'll just go to Seattle instead. He's already established in New England. He's already played well in New England. And, again, the Patriots are not a tire fire. They are a team that could get to the playoffs also. So, Thanks, everybody, for listening in here on the podcast version. Thanks for listening in on the live version as well. We are off entirely on Monday. we got Red Sox Day Baseball against the Miami Marlins to make up from last Sunday's game. So uh, Sox game on Monday. First pitch is 410, so no show for me. But we'll be back at it again on Tuesday before uh, the Red Sox take on the Houston Astros again, this time at Fenway Park. So thanks to Nathan Rohde in the live version, Michael Bumpus in the digital version, and I'll see you on Tuesday on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com.